Blood drinkers, night walkers, children of the night. Why hunt for scraps in the shadows when you can feast in style at New York City's hottest, trendiest vampire nightclub? Doors open at midnight, and we let in only the juiciest mortal partygoers to appease your diabolical thirst. (laughs) Yes, we offer seductive lounges, bloodbath dance floors, and people dancing in cages. So many people dancing in cages, we don't even know how to get them out. They just keep dancing. Delicious! And unlike typical vampire nightclubs, we separate the herd by blood type for your convenience. Ah. At Blut, you'll feast in the certainty that all human partiers in our medievalist-approved throne room are type AB. And our foam dance party room runs on type O negative exclusively, guaranteed. So don't leave blood tied to chance. Club Blood. Look for us on Vampire Yelp and don't forget to leave a review. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, it's still October. That means we're partying. That's right. It's Halloween. And Halloween means blood. It also means vampires, uh, as I think everyone probably got the idea uh, from uh, from the title of this episode and from the cold open that we just uh, inflicted upon you. You know what I was just wondering is whether in the month of October, people actually, like in the industry, you can see a spike in demand for caro syrup or general, you know, corn syrup <laughs> products and and red food coloring, is is the demand for fake blood enough to make a dent in an otherwise massive agricultural or industrial food product? Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, a lot of people are just going to buy a bottle of, of fake blood. They're not going to bother to mix their own. I guess that's true. Uh, you know, uh, I bet mixing your own is cheaper, though. Oh, I'm sure it is, but not everybody has the skill to create a you know a good batch of Kensington Gore. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I was trying to make fake blood, and I did it by mixing red food coloring with water, and that was how I discovered that blood is thick. Yeah, I mean it's far better just to shoot it all in black and white and use chocolate syrup. Mm-hmm. But even that gets a little little pricey, I imagine, and also is going to you know just attract a bunch of ants. But, uh, yeah, when you think Halloween, you think monsters, you think vampires, and, of course, you think blood. Now, blood hasn't really changed in the course of human history, but our understanding of blood has. Sure. Uh, Bloodletting used to be a lot more common. Right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes, sometimes vampire tales change to reflect some of the new ideas regarding blood. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm sure you can see vampire lore being affected by, say, the, the four humors theory when that was in vogue. Like, the idea you could have a sanguine personality that might be caused by an excess of blood in the body. I'm sure that that makes them specially juicy targets for vampires or something. Oh, there you're going to mean there was like there were, there were four different vampires for each of the humors, right? Oh, right. So, so you, you get the black bile vampire, yeah, the, the worst vampire. kind of vampire to be because it's so bitter. <laughs> so, yeah, this, the ideas of what blood is may change. But, of course, there's, first of all, the simple notion that blood is food. Various human cultures uh, include the consumption of animal blood in one form or another in their Cuisine, blood sausage is one example of that. Uh, blood tofu in in uh, certain Chinese cuisines is another example. Never heard of this blood yeah. tofu. Yeah, look it up. Made from blood? It's blood. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, and then there's the idea of blood as this is a fluid that contains our vital life force, right? Mm-hmm. This is a classic of the vampire trope. Uh, and, and naturally, we do need blood to survive, but traditions have, uh, have you know tend to go above and beyond biological fact in stressing this. Oh yeah, the, the blood takes on a kind of magical essence. It it's the you know the ecore of the mm-hmm. human. Uh, there is I, I I think you see this often when there. There is emphasis on monsters and other creatures having differently colored blood than humans do. Like their blood isn't red, it's green. And that shows that there's some different – there's some kind of different essence to them. And then there's also all kinds of beliefs about – you know, that your affinity for your family is based on the metaphor that you share blood, which is funny because you might not necessarily share physical characteristics of blood. You might not have the same blood type as either one of your parents, but there's this idea that you're bound by blood and that I think that takes on a more kind of uh, a magical kind of quality in people's minds. Yeah, this idea that there's this blood line flowing through the centuries. Uh-huh. Um, I do have to say I, I love uh, a creative blood color. 
in in a monster or certainly in like a Star Trek alien uh, type of scenario. There's only so many colors. Like, what, you mean like purple blood or what? Oh, yeah. Wasn't it uh, Star Trek, the undiscovered country where the Klingons had pink, had pink blood? It like, looked like Pepto-Bismol? Oh, I always chalked that up to bad early CGI. Ah. Because isn't there blood CGI in that movie? It's like it really early yeah. CGI floating around in the zero-G environment yeah. after the assassination At the time, attempt. it was really impressive. Uh-huh. Well, it looks terrible now. <laughs> but that movie still holds up as one of the better of the Star Trek movies. Oh, good. Now, in modern times, you'll often encounter vampire stories that invoke blood banks and and uh, and blood drives sometimes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and sometimes you'll even see recognition of blood types. And generally this amounts to uh, which blood a vampire finds most tasty. Hmm, interesting. I, I don't think I'm very familiar with it. Well, I am familiar with, of course, blood banks and blood drives because I remember when I was a kid and my family would go to the beach and we'd get Sci-Fi Channel on the TV. I'd mm-hmm. watch that show Forever Night, oh, which yeah? is about a good guy vampire who is also a cop, and he keeps a refrigerator full of, like, blood bank-style blood bags. I, I guess he drinks those in order to not have to kill people because he's good. Oh, man, Forever Night. I never watched Forever Night, but uh, it's one of those uh, Canadian series mm-hmm. where a lot of times I'll watch another Canadian series and I'll look it up and it's like, oh, this person's from Forever Night. Forever <laughs> Night is the like the, the beating heart at the center of uh, Canadian drama from that period of time. Yeah. I, I mean, I never saw all that much of it, but in the episodes I saw, because he's a good guy, he doesn't drink from necks, he drinks from bags. Ah, there's a... Um, there's a Tales from the Crypt uh, uh, episode that uh, called The Reluctant Vampire that starred uh, Malcolm McDowell mm. as as the the titular uh, uh, reluctant vampire, mm-hmm. and also had just an all star cast. Of course, like all those episodes, just a, a an embarrassment of, of riches, right? Uh, generally squandered on some sort of uh, <laughs> you know sappy bad taste kind of plot. But this this episode's pretty good. But in that one, uh, he's depending on a blood bank as well. But then occasionally, like, meeting real uh, live hosts to prey upon, and he ends up asking them a lot of questions about, you know, if they had dental surgery recently, that sort of thing. Uh, but but he, he never asked them about oh. his, their actual blood type. Dental surgery? Wait, like, he fears the amalgam in their teeth or something? Like, they might have silver? Uh, he just needs to have a good, uh, you know, oh, okay. recent, uh, you know, uh, biomedical history before he uh, uses them as uh, his prey. Fair enough. Now, of course, the, the HBO series True Blood uh, features vampires that have a, a, a clear preference when it comes to blood type, and they use a synthetic blood product that's labeled and bottled called True Blood, which is in the show available in, uh, in different uh, types. So you can get your O negative uh, True Blood bottle. Or you, if you prefer AB, they have AB as well. Oh, so all these – I haven't seen True Blood, but all these vampires are of the, the forever night type where they don't drink from people, they drink from bags. They're supposed to because it's basically like vampires are out amongst us uh, and we're living alongside each other. Mm-hmm. They have kind of their separate government. We have ours and there's like a treaty that says they're only going to drink their synthetic blood products or you know, consenting um, uh, adult humans that wish to have their blood uh, drained, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag, but it, it also has a wonderful cast. And uh, Dennis O'Hare in particular was a real standout playing this character uh, that was the king of Mississippi. Okay. Uh, Stephen Root also showed up at one point and it was great. Stephen Root's wonderful. Yeah. Um, uh, there's another uh, movie uh, this time that I ran across that was interesting that invokes blood types. 1939's The Return of Dr. X. I haven't seen this. No, I, I was not even familiar with this at all because it, it stars Humphrey Bogart. As an evil doctor. Hey, okay. Yeah. Who's been brought back to life, because this is a sequel, uh-huh. uh, in, this, in this movie, he's brought back to life with synthetic blood, and he has to find typo victims and drain their blood and use it in order to stay alive because his synth- synthetic blood cannot replenish itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a, a few years before the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, <laughs> in case anyone's wondering. You know, I like uh, – I, I really like Humphrey Bogart as a villain-type character or at least as a very dark and troubled character as opposed to well, – I don't know. You might say that he has shades of villainousness in his detective stories and in Casablanca. But in uh, movies like A Lonely Place or he mm-hmm. plays this like scary, abusive creep or in uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I guess you could say also, I think Bogart actually makes a great villain and I, w- I wish I'd seen him as a villain more often, so I want to see this. Yeah. 
Uh, now, of course, Doctor X is no typical vampire. Uh, generally, the you know the, the model is very much uh, parasitic in nature. Perhaps a vampire can taste the difference uh, amid blood types in the same uh, manner that a wine connoisseur can taste things in the wine that others can't, or at least can you know claims to have that ability. <laughs> Love your, you got some skepticism about the sommelier, don't you? I, do, I want to come back to it at some point uh-huh. because uh, I feel like there was an old episode of the show where we, we looked at one of these studies that was a real um, – I, I mean I don't even know to what extent it was a true study. It was just kind of a got you, got you exercise uh-huh. with wine experts, like tricking them into saying one wine was another and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so forth. Uh, but I, th- I think there's – I'd like to, to to give the topic uh, due diligence sometime and really get into like because sometimes the you know the idea of priming and you know bringing in some sort of prior knowledge to your experience of the wine uh, you see people talk about that as if that's a you know a negative you know but I mean that's part of the appreciation of any kind of food product or, or certainly a wine is knowing where it came from sure. and making connections and if the, some of the connections are maybe partially imagined or exaggerated based on your prior knowledge I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing at all. Have you been to any of these places that do wine-style tasting notes but for oysters? Um, yes, I, I have. I'm all in on that. When yeah. I have the oyster, I'm like, yes, I ta- yes, that's right, salted melon. Yeah, I mean, in cases like that, they're providing me with this, the specific terminology and descriptive language that I don't have uh, you know, regarding oysters or or certainly wine or what have you, mm-hmm. and it gives, and then I can I can look for those things in my uh, my taste sensation that I'm experiencing. Right. Then yeah, once they give you the words for it, you can kind of find it in the the the, the sensation void. <laughs> with with most cases of, of fictional vampires, though, yeah, they're uh, the, I think we can we can assume that yeah, maybe they could taste uh, some sort of difference in the blood type. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're essentially parasitic. They're they're digesting the blood now, and since they're digesting the blood. You know, it's not going to matter, you know, what kind of – what type of blood it is because their digestive system is going to break down all those troublesome proteins. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then again, I don't think I've ever seen – outside of uh, Dr. X here, I don't think I've encountered a vampire or vampire-like creation that can only use one particular blood type. Well, if you imagine vampire physiology a little bit different, like you're saying that they just use a normal style digestive system, Mm -hmm. break it down for the nutrition in it. What if it's that the vampire drinks blood in order to have blood? So like when the vampire drinks blood, they're essentially getting a blood transfusion. In that case, maybe the vampire would need, in fact, to have a compatibility test for the right kind of blood because drinking the wrong kind of blood could give them an immune response. Yeah, that would – I think that could make sense because uh, it also would, would line up with some of these descriptions from uh, folklore where they would dig up the body of the, the vampire and it would be just um, just this thick and bloated with blood. Like every you – know, all its entire – all of its flesh is just uh, just completely ballooned up with the stuff, you mm-hmm. know. You're saying that's the swelling of the allergic reaction? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe that's the, that's the uh, explanation. Well, maybe we should get into how blood types actually work because I realized not too long ago that this is something I should know and I actually didn't. So I had to like go and read up about it. Yeah, uh, it, it's easy to go through life without knowing the explanation for it and just and hopefully just knowing what your blood type is but not necessarily what that means. Right. Uh, well, should we take a break first and then come back and talk about the, the blood type basics? Let's do it. All right, we're back. All right, so if you know your blood type or if you've seen blood types listed before, you generally will have seen a letter followed by a plus or minus sign. And that letter is probably going to be A or B or AB or O. But so, okay, you know there are at least several different types of blood, but you might not know what they do. In fact, there are actually many different blood type families. I think the known number of human blood group systems is now somewhere in the 40s. So there there are tons of different ways of classifying and grouping blood. But the most common and the most important uh, blood group types to discuss are the ABO blood group system and what's known as the RH factor. Now, you've heard of these before, but what do they mean? Uh, simply put, blood type refers to which category of antigens you will find on the outside of your red blood cells, and that in turn determines how your body's immune system responds to different types of blood from other donors because of the antigens on the outside of their red blood cells and also how other people's bodies would respond to your blood if, you, if given a transfusion from you. By the way, Joe, before we go any any further, uh, what is your blood type? 
I almost answered, but then I stopped. Should I reveal <laughs> my blood type on air? I, I wonder. Know. I'm getting flashes of some future, like, cyber scenario where I regret sharing this information publicly. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't think of a way people would use it against us. Uh, I can think of a way Facebook will use it against us. Well, probably. Okay, well, you don't have to reveal if you don't want to. Oh, you want to reveal yours? Well, I mean, I don't mind saying that I'm, um, I'm, I'm typo negative. Oh, nice. Yeah, just like the, the, the goth industrial band mm-hmm. of the same name. Well, you also have a, a rare and important blood group, as we'll discuss as we go on. Yes. And we'll, we'll just consider Joe's uh, blood type to be uh, what uh, blood type enigma. We'll, we'll leave it to the, <laughs> the listeners to imagine what it might be. Blood type question mark equals sign. Yes. Uh, okay. So red blood cells, we know they serve the function of traveling through the body and transporting oxygen molecules to body tissues, and they also carry away carbon dioxide. And so the outsides of the red blood cells in your body will have these little molecules on the outside of them, these structures made of molecules uh, that on, on the top layers of these structures consist of various types of antigens that uh, – and of course, an antigen is just something that your body's immune system can recognize as a threat and react to. And so your red blood cells can have either A antigens, B antigens, both, or neither – If your red blood cells just have A antigens, just these A antigen molecules on the outer layer, you have blood type A. If you have just B antigens, you have blood type B. If you have both, you're blood type AB. And if you have neither, you are blood type O. All right. I think that's pretty straightforward. So really, yeah, there there are like two critters at play here. You can have either one, both, or neither. Uh, Now, of course, blood types are genetically inherited. You get them from your biological parents. But your ABO blood type is based on interactions between a number of dominant and recessive genes. So the correlation between your parents' blood types and your own blood type can be kind of confusing. It, It can, for example, happen that your blood type might be different from both of your parents' blood types because of a dominant recessive interaction. Um, but uh, if you want to work it out, you can look up inheritance matrices uh, for blood type online. These are easy to find. Right. Or you can just do like most families do and uh, just put your blood in a Petri dish and just go around in a circle and put a hot wire into it. <laughs> right. <laughs> that way you can find out whose family and who's definitely not. Well, it's funny how uh, – how close the, that scene in The Thing is to some of the early tests that were done to figure out what was going on with blood types. I'll get into that in a minute. All right. um, so, again, why does it matter which type of blood you have if you're going to receive a blood transfusion? Well, again, it's because of your immune system. So within your body, you've got uh, – in, in your blood plasma, you have white blood cells and you've got antibodies that work kind of like defense drones latching on to certain types of antigens that they uh, encounter, things in your body that seem like they might be some bit of dangerous foreign material in the blood. Uh, and, of course, the, the main thing you'd be worried about there is some kinds of germs, right? Uh, now, generally, we don't have antibodies that will attack our own red blood cells. So if you have blood type A, meaning you've got these A antigens on the outside of your red blood cells, your immune system will not attack A antigens because, you know, you, you, you need to not attack them. They're, they're going to be abundant throughout you. But it probably will attack B antigens and vice versa. So generally, your immune system will attack whichever of these little uh, molecules on the outside of red blood cells you don't naturally have. So it works out like this. If you have type A blood, your immune system will attack B antigens. If you have type B blood, your immune system will attack A antigens. If you have type AB blood, you have both antigens, so your immune system will attack neither of them. If you have type O blood, you have neither antigens, so your immune system will attack both. Following so far? Yeah, I think I think it's pretty straightforward for everybody. It's it's basically uh, you know the the starbellied sneeches, except a little more complicated. Yeah, with like like you know th- three or four uh, different tribes of sneeches. Well, right. Uh, I mean, this means that when you donate or receive a blood transfusion, you don't always just need to match the same type between donor and recipient. There are these inherent asymmetries in who can receive what types of blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if you have AB blood, you can receive blood from any other type. You can receive AB blood, you can receive B blood, you can receive AB blood or O blood, it doesn't matter because you don't in your blood plasma have antibodies to attack any of those other types of red blood cells. And for this reason, type AB is the universal recipient class. 
But if you donate AB blood, that blood can only go to a recipient who is also AB because that recipient otherwise is going to have uh, an immune system reaction to one, of, one or both of those uh, antigens on the outside of those cells. Now, on the flip side, type O blood, which has neither A nor B antigens, is the universal donor class. You can give type O blood to people with A, B, AB, or O, and it will usually be fine. Now, I think we should say that these donor, uh, you know, these donor safety statements are for most cases. These are like on average, they'll be better. They're always kind of like anomalous reactions people can have to any type of uh, blood right. donation. And, uh, and, 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 and that also gets into the fact that all things being equal, an exact match is, is always preferred. But certainly in an emergency, uh, that's when you see cases where, uh, where uh, you know, the universal donor can come in. Exactly. And uh, that's a, one reason a common practice in modern hospitals and clinics today is to collect blood from a patient in advance of a preplanned surgery or procedure in which a transfusion might be necessary. So if you're going in for surgery these days, they'll usually take some of your blood, you know, the day before, the week before the surgery. And that way, if you suddenly need a transfusion, if there's some emergency during the procedure, you can receive your your own blood, decreasing the chance of an immune, immune reaction or any other compatibility issue. Right. It's not that your your doctor is a secret vampire right. <laughs> and just needs a taste before things get going. Right. But there may be times when somebody needs a blood transfusion and there's none of their own blood on hand to give them. So they need blood from a bank. They need blood from a donor, from a, a reserve of pre-stored blood that's there waiting for somebody who needs it. Uh, now, we should also say on top of the ABO system, there's also the RH factor, which is just yet another type of thing that you would find on the outside of red blood cells. This time it's a protein uh, that's known as the uh, the rhesus factor or RH factor after the rhesus monkeys from which it was originally studied and isolated. Uh, and it works sort of the same way. Uh, basically, there are only two options with the RH factor. factor. Either you have these proteins, meaning you're RH positive, or you don't have them, meaning you're RH Rh negative, and the Rh factor is noted with a plus or a minus sign after your ABO type. So the true universal donor is actually not just blood type O, but blood type O negative. And the universal recipient is not just type AB, but type AB positive. Now that's the simplified version, but it also gets more complicated because the uh, the blood donor and recipient compatibilities vary based on whether you're talking about like red blood cells versus plasma. Like your red blood cells contain the antigens for your blood type, but your plasma will contain the antibodies or potential immune response correlated to your blood type. So most what we've been talking about so far has been for the red blood cells that would mm -hmm. be donated or received. Uh, but yeah, so again, so you mentioned your type O negative. You are the universal donor, Robert. You're you're uh, you're kind of human gold. Well, uh, I I do have to stress that I think that is we have to be careful about overstating that. Not that I'm gold because obviously I don't want people to harvest my blood uh, without my consent. I do try and give give blood, um, you know, a lot uh, when, whenever there's a blood drive, and I'm mm -hmm. uh, allowed, you know, to do so. But uh, but but also nobody out there who is like A B needs to to feel like oh well my blood's not as valuable I'm going to sit this one out like they don't really need my blood because I'm not O negative like no your blood is still really important because again all things being equal they're going to try and do as as close of a match as possible yeah th that's totally right all all blood is valuable all all blood is beautiful <laughs> and maybe all blood is delicious. Uh, should we, so let's let's talk a little bit about that the blood serum clumping test uh, we mentioned earlier. Now, uh, the Austrian immunologist and pathologist Carl Landsteiner, who I keep accidentally calling Landstrider, so <laughs> stop me if I do get uh, get dark crystal brain. But Carl Landsteiner, uh, he discovered the primary ABO blood groups around the years 1900 or 1901. And at the time, doctors knew that blood transfusions could be very dangerous, could kill patients. They caused adverse reactions in the recipient. Um, and, you know, up until around this time, th there was a good reason why blood transfusion wasn't done much. It was considered sort of a risky experimental kind of thing, not, not like a standard medical intervention. Yeah, I, I realize I probably bring this show up every time we talk about the history um, uh, of uh, 
of uh, of surgery. But uh, the the excellent Cinemax series from uh, Soderbergh, uh, The Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one scene in which they attempt a blood transfusion um, to save a patient, and uh, the patient is just killed on the operating table. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that would have been a reality at this time. Mm-hmm. Like, if you so there were surgeons who tried to experiment with blood transfusions because patients died all the time for. For, from blood loss. And so, if, you know, if you could find a way to get blood into them to save their life, that would be great. And sometimes it worked. Yeah. But a lot of times it didn't. And it if it didn't work, there were chances it could go catastrophically bad and could kill you. Yeah, but they—they they, I think they begin to realize. Yeah, there's some there's some code in the blood. There's some there's something here. There's a reason that it works sometimes, but not other times. Uh, we just have to figure out what that is. Yeah. Now, one of the things that doctors of the time observed is that you you could see this if you just mix together blood samples from different patients in uh, in in dishes or in tubes, sometimes when you mix together blood samples from different patients, you would get what was known as agglutination, which is where the red blood cells all start to clump together. That's not good if that happens inside your body, right? So clearly that's a major thing that must be happening in these cases where you give humans a blood transfusion and it goes really wrong. And yet, while we knew these negative reactions could happen, we didn't know exactly why. And Landsteiner comes in here. He figures out that this adverse reaction to donated blood was because the recipient's immune system in the plasma is attacking the new blood cells like they were germs. And Landsteiner figured out that these immune reactions were correlated to four categories of antigen profiles in red blood cells, which now uh, – from, from which we've now derived the – first he discovered the A group, the B group, and the O group, and then a little bit later he discovered the AB group also. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, there are these other blood factors and Landsteiner discovered several of those as well, such as like M, N, and P factors. And he was also involved in research decades later that uh, led to the discovery of the RH factor. Again, that's like the plus and the minus sign after you see the most common blood types in the AB group or the ABO group. Uh, and Landsteiner eventually won the Nobel Prize for his research, which was essential to making blood transfusions safe and commonplace. So this was like – very important work in the history of medicine. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those surgical technologies, medical technologies, uh, that um, it's hard to imagine modern medical science without the ability to uh, give blood transfusions. Right. Um, But there still is an underlying mystery here, something that we haven't fully solved yet. Why do we have different blood types? Like what evolutionary pressures, if any, brought about these different uh, these different antigen structures on the outside of red blood cells. This is still to some extent an unsolved mystery in human evolution. But I think uh, at least as far as I've read, there are some indications that the evolved differences in blood types may have something to do with different pressures related to immune response and uh, protection against disease. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm getting from, uh, from, from the information I was looking at here. Um, uh, so let's get into this. The idea that in a sense, there are powers in the blood, or, or more specifically, I guess that that different blood types bring with them different uh, immune strengths, and in some cases, perhaps uh, immune weaknesses. Yeah, and you know, this is a very common thing to find in human ex- uh, evolution. A lot of times, you see different population groups uh, with slight differences, and you wonder why, and it's because of some local parasite that people's ancestors evolved to uh, to resist. And so let's let's talk about parasites here, the real blood drinkers, uh, the the real dangerous vampires. Uh, not Count Dracula, uh, but the but the the, the mosquitoes uh, that drink human blood, that hunt us for our blood, and spread uh, a host of deadly diseases in the process. The real vampires, yes. Yeah. So you know, you may have heard before, you may have read this before, that mosquitoes prefer type O blood. I don't know if I'd heard that, but uh, oh, once you start looking for it, you see it <laughs> all over the place. Uh-huh. Uh, and more than that, you probably read it in any number of articles in in very trustworthy publications. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's it's been widely reported, yeah, that people with type O are bitten twice as often as people with type A, while type B falls somewhere in between. Huh. Okay. So wait, you get bitten a lot by mosquitoes? 
I mean, I do. I was bitten numerous times yesterday, actually, <laughs> while researching this because I was working out on the porch and then I grilled uh, in the afternoon. And I was uh, thinking, like, well, you know, I, I sure did get uh, attacked by them a lot. But then well, again, that proves it. <laughs> but yeah, that's hardly proof. That's just like if, any time you're bit by a mosquito, um, fed upon by a mosquito, you know, that's that's one time too many, right? Right. So uh, a lot of these articles, though, they're, they end up pointing to a 2004 study from uh, the Journal of uh, Medicine Etymology from 2004 from uh, Charest et al., uh, which found that, quote, blood group O subjects uh, attracted more uh, mosquitoes than other blood groups, B, A, B, and A, uh, but were significantly more attractive than blood group A subjects in 64 human landing tests. So um, yeah, this one's this this one is cited a lot. I'll come back to that in a second. But I, I want to point out that uh, the Smithsonian Magazine uh, has an article about uh, uh, about this, and they point out that uh, you know based on genes, about eighty five percent of people secrete a chemical signal that broadcasts their blood type, but fifteen percent do not. And mosquitoes are apparently more attracted to secretors. Hmm. Now, to be clear, though, there are plenty of other factors here at Well that play into uh, whether uh, mosquitoes will swarm to you. Uh, they don't care about uh, gender, hair color, or pigmentation, but they uh, can be attracted by uh, the big one. Uh, one of the big ones is carbon dioxide, right? Uh, sweat, high body temperature is a big one. Uh, certain skin bacteria, uh, ethanol excretion, and sweat due to beer consumption. Really? Yeah. Pregnancy uh, apparently is a factor, but that seems to come down to just carbon dioxide and warmth. Warmth, like increased carbon dioxide and warmth, mm-hmm. and then also dark clothing, uh, which that's one that matches up, I, I found, with my experience killing mosquitoes, is that they'll be attracted to dark things I'm wearing, and then if I'm killing them, say, in a bungalow, they're going to go to the dark corners of the bungalow to try and get away from me. Well, I wonder if it's because out on a warm day, dark clothing gets hotter. Yeah, that's true. They're attracted to heat. Yeah. uh, Again, heat's one of the big ones. Now, the notion that mosquitoes prefer uh, type O blood uh, did not hold up for long. The study was was criticized for statistical problems. Uh, Joseph Conlon, a technical advisor of the American Mosquito Control Association, uh, has dismissed this as as not being that that big of a factor or not being a factor at at all. Mm -hmm. But, But you still see it cited quite a bit. But as far as I can tell, uh, based on uh, on the research here, I, I don't think blood type really plays into whether or not a mosquito is going to feast on your blood. Or certainly, it's not it's 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 not going to compare to the other factors that are uh, going to dictate uh, whether or not you're going to be fed upon. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, there does seem to be evidence that people with type uh, O blood are protected from the most severe forms of malaria. Hmm. According to a 2015 Swedish study, a protein secreted by malarial parasites only bonds weakly with type O blood cells but bonds strongly to A. Uh, as a result, type O blood is more prominent in malaria-plague regions. Uh, the researchers uh, from the um, uh, Karolineska Institute point out that roughly half of Nigeria's population has type O blood. And by the way, this is, uh, this is how it breaks down in the United States, according to uh, the Red Cross. Uh, o positive blood, you'll find uh, uh, 47% among African Americans, 39% among Asians, 37% among Caucasians, 53% among uh, Latino Americans. And then uh, O negative, 4% among African Americans, 1% among Asians, 8% among Caucasians, and 4% among uh, uh, Latino Americans. So uh, having type O blood with the positive RH factor is much more common. Yes. Yeah, and and certainly you see like in in the um, the the, Ameri- the African American population, you do see that uh, significantly higher um, uh, rate of O positive blood. Likewise, with Latino American blood as well. So I I, I think these are some of the key statistics that people are focusing in on when they're making a case for. Um, uh, you know the blood type having this uh, this immune factor. You know this is the the, uh, the reason you find these different uh, blood types in different uh, human populations. The result of your more recent ancestors being exposed to more malaria risk. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, on the other hand, people with type uh, O blood tend to become more severely ill from cholera. Uh, compared to other blood types. And according to a 2016 study from the Washington University School of Medicine, it may be due to the way that blood type influences how strongly cholera toxin activates intestinal cells leading to diarrhea. Oh, yeah. I was also reading about 
some uh, evidence that there may be different responses to norovirus having mm. to do with blood types. Well, that, yeah, that would make sense too. Um, I, I've also seen A, B, and A, B linked to higher risk for coronary heart disease, but yeah. um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't look into that uh, uh, super closely. I'm not sure how much of that is, is really uh, ironed out or, or to what extent is correlation. I think type A blood is uh, associated with greater risks for some types of cancers. Mm. Now, of course, uh, as we stressed already, one of the most important aspects of type O blood remains that it is a universal donor, meaning that in an, emer- in an emergency, it can be used with the lowest risk of serious reactions for all blood types. And so, as you might imagine, it would be ideal to be able to transform any blood type into a universal donor, right? Uh, and I suppose our vampires uh, would uh, would very much like that as well if they indeed prefer um, O uh, O negative and O positive blood. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that this could be achieved is by using bacteria enzymes to clip away sugars that give red blood cells their type. Uh, but it's ultimately not a very effective method. But recently, this year, in fact, researchers at the University of British Columbia found two types of enzymes in the human gut biome that, that can transform uh, blood types essentially into O uh, into O-type blood. One converts the uh, antigen to an amine, and the other removes the antigen completely. Hmm. Uh, but a lot of work remains uh, to be done in this area before anything like a human test uh, of this would be possible. But it does show how uh, we could very well come to a, a you know a day in the future where uh, when you give blood, that blood is then uh, can then be be altered so that it can be uh, more broadly used. Now we alluded to this earlier, but there there are also tons of uh, just edge cases where things get more interesting and more complicated than the blood type groups we've been talking about so far. Like there is. What's known, I think, is like uh, the Bombay blood type group, mm, where yeah. uh, this is a, a relatively isolated phenomenon. But um, uh, but people who are not type A, B, A, B, or O, and can only receive blood from each other. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to get into some blood myths. All right, we're back. Uh, so, you know, we started off this uh, episode talking about vampires drinking blood, and we, we touched on the idea of vampires being sort of like wine connoisseurs. So what if you had a, a, an elder Nosferatu-style vampire holding up a goblet of blood and, uh, you know, sniffs it, sips it, and then starts just, uh, uh, you know, ranting about uh, and raving about how, oh, you can tell that this one this one came from a hunter. Uh-huh. This one came from a, you know, a, 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 a fiercely lover uh, and I can taste <laughs> has, it. This has notes of Big Mac, <laughs> notes of barbecue sauce. <laughs> uh, but uh, getting into this idea though that um, that blood uh, could in any way inform the vampire about the personality of the individual that it came from, uh, you know, that would seem to get into uh, into supernatural aspects about blood for sure. And yet we also see this idea, uh, you know, moving among uh, the living in, in our real world, uh, this idea that personality is somehow tied to blood type. Yeah, it's a somewhat popular form of personality assessment in Japan these days uh, that's based on blood types. Uh, so in some Japanese magazines and TV shows and stuff, you'll find what are essentially blood type horoscopes or for uh, or how about this, blood type relationship compatibility charts. Like if you know, you, you to figure out if you've met the person who's right for you, look up their blood type on this chart and see how it correlates with yours. Uh, and this is all predicated on the belief that blood types concern more than just the proteins and antibodies and stuff in your blood, but that they actually determine important aspects of your personality, much like the zodiac signs in Western astrology. Mm-hmm. Um, and though I think some Western characterizations of this folk belief may be overstating its importance in modern Japanese culture, the popularity of books in Japan giving life advice based on blood type indicates that this is at least a, a somewhat or pretty popular belief. I guess it's always hard. Like I was trying to find a survey that had good numbers on this, but I couldn't find anything that was very well sourced in English. Uh, but I guess it's always kind of hard to determine things like this anyway because even if you ask people like, well, do you believe in – uh, you know, uh, astrology and the zodiac signs predicting your personality, or do you believe in blood types predicting personality? I always kind of wonder with stuff like this, like, to what extent do people really believe in it? Like, with astrology, I think there are a lot of people who 
do it, who participate in it, who are who sort of believe in it, maybe half ironically, but but they wouldn't say take the advice of an astrologer over the advice of their doctor. Yeah, we we got into this a little bit when we talked about uh, the Chinese zodiac uh, on a past episode of the show uh, with with some of the, like the, the birth rate spikes that mm-hmm. one sees in the auspicious year of the dragon. And I remember some of the the authors writing on this were pointing to not you know not a situation where you had like a bunch of really hardcore, um, you know, Chinese zodiac enthusiast in these Chinese communities outside of mainland China where the, the uh, uh, where the research was conducted, uh, but rather it was the idea that you had the younger uh, individuals with more of a casual acquaintance, uh, more casual knowledge of the zodiac. They were just kind of, you know, they're trying to make a big life decision and they, there's a lot of information coming at you and you're probably getting second and third opinions and maybe you get that fourth opinion from the zodiac and all things being equal, maybe you give in to that. Right, that you can kind of that you can kind of engage with it and kind of let it partially guide you, even if you're not a diehard believer, right? Uh, or even maybe if you wouldn't even admit to believing. I don't know. Uh, but I I do not think, by the way. I mean, we should go ahead and say this: there is any good evidence that personality traits are strongly or even moderately correlated with blood types. Uh, there may be a small number of extremely weak correlations, but even that seems uncertain. Uh, I was just looking at one study by uh, Kingo Nawata called No Relationship Between Blood Type and Personality, Evidence from a Large-Scale uh, Evidence from Large-Scale Surveys in Japan and the US, published in the Japanese Journal of Psychology in 2014. The author here writes that uh, the relationship between personality and the ABO blood type is popular in Japan, but there has previously been no empirical substantiation for the belief. And uh, so this study is a secondary analysis of data collected from more than 10,000 American and Japanese subjects in the years 2004 and 2005. And of 68 personality traits or items assessed, there was no significant difference between blood group types for 65 of those 68 traits and I guess small effects observed for the other three, which could still turn out to be errors. So basically at best, the author writes, quote, blood type explained less than 0.3 percent of total variance in personality. These results showed the non-relevance of blood type for personality. So the bottom line is that the relationship between blood type and personality seems to be somewhere within the range of extremely weak to non-existent. And yet you will find plenty of popular books on this subject. You'll find websites that offer, you know, guides. I, I found stuff even in English, I guess, uh, for helping people get acquainted with Japanese culture and showing, you know, stuff about like blood type compatibility between different personalities. Uh, I guess we'll refer to that more in a minute. But apparently much of the interest in blood type personality stuff comes from a series of books beginning in the 1970s by a Japanese journalist named Masahiko Nomi. And uh, th- this was not a guy with any scientific credentials, by the way. But uh, there are a ton of books by different authors on this subject. Apparently up until the present day, this remains sort of a popular genre of life advice. You know, when it comes to things like life advice and and, and ultimately some of the more supernatural uh, you know, things we turn to, be it, a, you know, astrology or something else. Uh, it, I think, you know, a lot of it is just coming from this idea that, you know, people, I, I think, you know, you just feel paralyzed by choice. You need something yeah. to guide you, uh, sure. be it the stars or the secrets in your blood or whatever is being, uh, you know, related to you. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I understand that it can feel it can feel liberating to have have something tell you you know what you should do, or to just sort of back up some sort of core belief about yourself. Uh, I I think there's another thing at work here that lines up perfectly with that, and I'll come back to it in just a minute. Uh, but I wanted to look specifically at like, well, what are the blood types believed to be correlated with? Mm-hmm. Like, if you believe in this, what what does it tell you about yourself? Uh, it seems complicated and somewhat variable. Like, I was finding different descriptions of the blood type personalities that didn't seem to exactly match up with each other. Though I find this the same thing when I look at personality assessments due to the due to the zodiac signs yeah. in astrology. Um, but according to a 2012 BBC article I was reading by Ruth Evans on the subject, uh, it just gives a list of examples. Quote, according to popular belief in Japan, type A's are sensitive perfectionists and good team players, but overanxious. Type O's are curious and generous, but stubborn. <laughs> AB's are arty, but mysterious and unpredictable. And type B's are cheerful, but eccentric, individualistic, and selfish. 
Um, and uh, also to add to that, roughly 40% of people in Japan are type A, about 30% are type O, about 20% are type B, and about 10% are type AB. Uh, I also found a chart for blood types uh, with positive traits and negative traits uh, correlated here from a website called Tofugu, which I think is like a – it's an English language website for people who want to uh, maybe travel to Japan and learn about Japanese culture. And it's sharing a bunch of stuff here like it says that uh, people with blood type A, uh, their positive traits are that they are earnest and they're neat, but their negative traits are that they are stubborn and they're anxious uh, people with blood type O, here you go, Robert. You are easygoing and you've got leadership ability. Oh, well, I think I have one of those things, <laughs> not, not the second one. Uh, but you're also insensitive and unpunctual. I think I'm very sensitive and I'm semi-punctual. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that lines up with me at all. Uh, but it also says uh, type B here is supposed to be passionate and creative, but also selfish and uncooperative. Hmm. And type AB is talented and composed, but eccentric and two-faced. Hmm. Two-faced, that sounds really negative. Now, but but then again, we also have to look at the ratio, um, at least the presented ratio uh, that one finds in Japan. Mm -hmm. So this probably become, becomes a situation where if you have blood types occurring at certain percentages within a given uh, culture, mm -hmm. then you can also match that up uh, with social norms in a given culture. Right. And since AB is amounting to just 10 percent here, then, yeah, you can go ahead and say that those are the eccentric and the two-faced uh, yeah. people. Right. They're such a small section of society anyway. They're the artsy weirdos. Yeah. And, you, and so you might think, well, OK, well, that more or less lines up. So the thing that I detect in this um, – Pretty much exactly the same way that I detect it in uh, in astrology generally is that there is a good bit of the forer effect at uh. work here. Uh, now we did a whole episode about the forer effect a few years back, and I remember very thinking very fondly of that one. I think that was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but in short, this is a psychological phenomenon in which. People have the tendency to interpret vague general assessments and predictions as specific and highly accurate statements about themselves, right? So you can say something that would apply to almost anybody saying like, you know, oh, it turns out people with your blood type are uh, – it can be sometimes insensitive but also are passionate about whatever, you know, like give a list of characteristics and – Everybody will just say, yeah, yeah, that's me. Well, how do they know so much about me? Uh, this was demonstrated in this original experiment by this American psychologist named Bertram Forer when he had his students take a personality test and then he later handed back the, quote, results of their test and asked the students to rate how specific and accurate the characterizations from the results were to them individually. And for the most part, the students were like, wow, yes, this is really describing me. In fact, Forer had handed back the exact same personality assessments to every student in the class and there was no correlation between their answers on the test and the results they got, obviously – this probably led to lots of nervous laughter. Mm -hmm. But I think this certainly rings true. I mean, people are so hungry for personality tests and stuff. We, we have a natural eagerness to interpret vague general statements as applying specifically to us in particular and being like, oh, yeah, that is me. They got me. Yeah, I mean, it, it pro probably more so than ever with the, you know, the sort of online lives so many of us lead. You know, we, we want without actual personal interaction uh, with someone, we want we want something to tell us, some sort of feedback mechanism. And so then when you're told, oh, well, your negative traits are that you're insensitive and you're unpunctual, you may be inclined then to instead of saying, oh, well, I'm actually sensitive, you know, um, screw off, you're going to say, well, wait, in what ways am I insensitive? Ooh, like there's one right there. I just remembered one, that right. sort of thing. And that's exactly what Bertram Forer said. So he was uh, assessing these results he found and he said, you know, what's going on here he thinks is a combination of what he calls universal validity and subjective validation, or I think he called it uh, personal validation, but more recent research calls it subjective validation. And basically this means that uh, as Forer writes, the universal uh, validity trait is that, quote, virtually every psychological trait can be observed in some degree in everyone. So like any psychological statement you could make, you can find examples in your own autobiography for which it's true. One of one of my uh, my favorite examples of this, and I, I feel like uh, I mean I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this as well. Uh, um, the the misuse of the word um, uh, sociopath. 
Uh-huh. Um, and, and we've discussed sociopaths and, and psychopaths and what these terms actually mean on the show before. But in a general sense, uh, there is a tendency to just throw the word around mm-hmm. uh, at other people, but also at your own self, where you're like, "Oh my goodness, am I am I a sociopath? Uh, was was I acting like a sociopath the other day when I did this or the other?" Uh, you know, we we have this tendency to lean into those terms uh, for uh, you know for either regarding ourselves or to mold our perceptions of other people to fit them. A sociopath is somebody who behaves like a sociopath most or all of the time, mm-hmm. as opposed to you who behave like a sociopath only some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> 10 percent of the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other thing he, he says that's paired with this, so every psychological trait you find to some degree in almost everybody. But mm-hmm. then he says on top of that, there's subjective validation, which is that – this is what you were just alluding to. When you search through your own autobiography and your mental picture of yourself to judge whether a personality statement applies to you, You've got a huge number of memories and instances to draw from and no real way of judging whether a personality assessment statement applies better to you than it does to other people. So imagine if I tell you because of your blood type, you have a tendency to be generous but also stubborn. Because of universal validity, almost anybody can think of examples of times when they were both generous and stubborn. Uh, And because of subjective validation, you'll have lots of opportunities in your memories to find examples of yourself displaying both of these traits, as well as difficulty judging whether you actually display those traits more or less than other people do. Hmm. I mean, because you know more about yourself than you know about all other people, you'll probably just have the tendency to find more examples of any trait with Within yourself than you would normally see in others. But I think especially if the traits are flattering. <laughs> well, it also drives home just how if, if an individual is given to narcissism, how easy it is to feed that narcissism. And likewise, oh, yeah. if one is given to uh, self-deprecation or just outright depression, like there's always going to be plenty of stuff to feed that as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, But one aspect that I think is interesting about the blood type personality myth in particular as opposed to, say, uh, Western astrology or the zodiac signs is that it seems a little more biologically plausible. Like it's something about real genetic traits within the body. Mm -hmm. If blood type is a heritable biological trait, which it is, why couldn't certain aspects of personality be biologically inherited in some correlated way? Like the idea isn't inherently implausible. It just doesn't seem to be true. Yeah, I mean it's 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 leaning into the idea of the the mind body connection. Yeah. which is it, it is a reality, but uh but that doesn't mean that every invocation of the mind body connection is uh is scientifically authentic. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, there are su- there's evidence of some correlation between mammalian gut flora and personality mm-hmm. traits. So, uh, so like, if that could be going on, why couldn't blood type be uh, correlated with personality traits? It's not that it's impossible. It just does not seem to be the case. Right. Now, another area that one will sometimes find some life advice uh, tied up with blood type uh, is in the the domain of diet. Oh, boy. Yep. It's been argued that different blood types benefit from different diets. And this uh, idea was popularized in the book Eat Right for Your Type, written by naturopath Peter Diadimo. So basically, it it draws on this idea that like each blood type is kind of uh, it, it kind of ties you to a specific archetype of uh, of, of ancient human identity, right? So, which, which is not true, we know. right? Right, it, n- not true. Uh, like our our blood types evolutionarily are traced back to our uh, like ape like ancestors. They, they go back that far. It's not uh, it's not from like what profession your great great grandparents had, right? So, like for instance, it's it's presented that type A's are agrarians and they need an agrarian diet that's essentially devoid of meat. Uh, B's are nomads who can eat meat but need to avoid wheat, corn, lentils, etc. AB's are enigmas and they just uh, have to avoid kidney beans, corn, beef, and chicken. And meanwhile, type O's are hunters and basically need a paleo diet, so limited grains, legumes, and dairy, but lots of protein. So that would make me a hunter. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but but then again, okay, so uh, you know, one might say, well, okay, maybe with, without leaning as much on the, this idea of you know th- these archetypes, but maybe there is still something to it because again, our blood is our body; it's part of our body; it's part of our system. Perhaps there is some connection between different blood types and different dietary requirements. Sure, it could be the case, it, uh, but it again does not seem to actually be the case. Right. So there. 
there are, as far as I can tell, no studies uh, that that back this up. Uh, there has there's been at least one study that has uh, set out to debunk it. Uh, 2014 st- a study came out of the University of Toronto. They found that blood type had nothing to do with it, but rather you know it comes down to sticking to a reasonable vegetarian and low carb diet. Uh, now it's only a study of uh, 1,455 study participants, uh, but then again there's not a lot of research out there. This is one of the, uh, the the studies that does exist, and it certainly argues that there's there's nothing to this idea that diet needs to line up with your blood type. Yeah, and the basis of it on the idea of like humans as certain types of like natural professions in your blood that again that's that basis is wrong. Yeah. Now on on the other hand it's often pointed out that you know many people probably picked up this book uh, followed the dietary advice that was included and uh, experienced improvements in their health. Uh, and a part of that comes down to the fact that if you're if, if you do not have any kind of a managed diet at all, if you're perhaps eating poorly and then you start uh, you know, eating a largely vegetarian diet uh, based on your blood type, uh, you're still going to – you're going to see a shift in your overall health because now you are following a diet. Uh, you're probably following a healthier diet now. Right. Uh, you might be using it – you might be employing this diet for a reason that is not scientifically validated. Uh, but the idea that you could cut down on carbs and eat more vegetables and improve your health, well, that's, that's nothing uh, – there's, there's no superstition there. Yeah, I think I was reading one article that said uh, that some research on this just found that everybody should follow the blood type A diet or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like it didn't have anything to do with blood type. It's just that like some of these diets are going to be better than others. Yeah. But but again, we you know, come back to the fact that we can you can definitely see why this idea is appealing. Mm-hmm. Like there is this idea that there is a there's essentially a code in your blood. There's a secret language in your blood. And now that we know that language, uh, we can uh, you know we can better prepare for our personality for our we can better uh, choose a diet uh, based on this information but it's not really the case i think the idea of diets tailored to an individual person and not, not just the same diet for everybody th- there is something to that uh but again not that it has anything to do with blood type Right. I mean, you're going to have a host of issues there, too. I mean, people are going to have different um, allergies, obviously, <laughs> that are going to come into play. Right. Um, uh, you know, which is, again, just comes down to the, the complexity of our, our, of our immune systems for the most part. But imagine this were true and pair it with what you were talking about earlier about technologies to change blood types. Mm-hmm. This would be leading, obviously, to a future where everybody's trying to get the would it be cosmetic surgery, the elective surgery to transform their blood into the pastry group? The- oh, yeah. Well, that would be a step beyond even what – because I, I believe the research I was looking at was talking about changing blood after it has been removed. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but but then again, as long as we're you know cranking the time machine forward, <laughs> uh, I imagine I imagine somebody has probably speculated on, on a time when you could you could make those alterations to uh, a human being as well. Though I guess it would be easier just to change the blood, right? I mean, I, I, I guess – I don't know. How would you want it if you were doing uh, – you're sending a crew uh, out to another planet on a lengthy space uh, uh, journey. Would you want everybody to have the same blood type? Would you want uh, an array of blood types? Uh, my guess is that blood types would be a fairly low priority when selecting the crew. Yeah. I'm sorry unless, if that's a boring answer. <laughs> unless you're going to the planet of the vampires. Oh, what a great movie. Yeah, in which case it, it could become a factor. Though I don't remember – did that film actually have vampires in it or were they more zombies? Uh, they're sort of vampires, yeah. Yeah, uh, okay. it, yeah it had these uh, these spirits inhabit – oh, man, what a great movie. That movie's got killer costumes. The costumes are the main thing I remember. Yeah. Now, you can watch the movie on mute and it's almost as good. Is that Mario Bava? Yeah. I think uh, – actually, we, we just watched another Mario Bava movie last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we watched Black Sunday. You know that one? I know of it. I've seen I, – it's got that very distinctive cover art, but I've never seen it. Oh, you should see it sometimes. 1960, it's black and white, super creepy, very uh, unusual to see a, a black and white movie from as early as it was that's as gruesome and gory as mm. it is, uh, but in a good way. I, I would say – Pretty big thumbs up to Black Sunday. It's it's creepy, and also funny. <laughs> it's got a it's got this great professor character who just goes about smashing things. <laughs> he like goes into an old ruin, and there's uh, wind blowing through some organ pipes, and he just smashes them with his cane, <laughs> and then he smashes a tombstone. 
Well, speaking of smashing tombstones, uh, I think it's time to close this episode out. Okay. Uh, so I'm really also kind of surprised that we were able to do a vampire uh, episode. I, every time we do a vampire-themed uh, episode, I feel like like that's it. We've exhausted the vampire possibilities. Yeah, there's nothing else we can cover that's even vampire-flavored. I really enjoyed our vampire clinic episodes last yeah, year. Yeah, those were good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every time we we, we dip back in uh, to, to the vampire content, it's always uh, it's always rewarding. But uh, this one kind of took me by surprise. Uh, it was suggested that we do uh, something on blood types, and then I'm like, oh, well, it's got to be vampire themed, and uh, here we are. Wait, who suggested it? Oh, uh, my wife suggested it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I yeah. see now. Yeah, she. Was, I was like, oh, I don't know what we're going to record next week. We we got to pick one of these Halloween topics, uh-huh. and she was like, oh, we should do blood types. And I was like, well, yeah, that's that's true. It, it, Blood, vampires, Halloween, it's a perfect fit. And so there you have it. Uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there because you all have blood. You all have experience with your blood, thoughts about your blood. Perhaps you have exposure to um, blood type-based diets, uh, blood uh, type-based personality tests. You've all bathed in blood at some point. <laughs> and, and, and in doing so, noted the, like, the weird uh, coagulations of the blood, right? And you realize, oh, well, they mixed. I requested, right. specifically requested on all A, B, uh, bath, and they gave me a little bit of A and a little bit of B. It's not the same thing, people. It's not the same thing. A, a vampire can tell. Uh, also, yeah, maybe you've had a, a blood transfusion. Uh, you'd like to tell us about that as well. Uh, as always, you can find us in the normal places, and if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you have the power to do so, and be sure to subscribe to Invention as well. That's our other podcast. It is a journey through human techno history one invention at a time. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.